Have you ever wondered what made interest rates go down to 2% in 2020 and now 6% in 2022? Well, it isn't what you think. This week on Changing the Game podcast. Shout out Sean. Changing the game through real estate. Yeah. Changing the game through real estate. I can never wait. Got what it takes. I got this on my plate. And I got a budget. Teach you how to save. Listen to this podcast. You will kind of tell us like uh, how you kind of got in real estate. Why, why banking? Why mortgages? Like how did you kind of how did that story all come about? Yeah. So about 20 years ago, um, I was in a different outside sales profession and, you know, had uh, knew some people in the mortgage business. And so they said, Hey, we think you'd be really good at it. Why don't you come, you know, check it out. And, you know, I kind of just jumped in with both feet. Um, it's been a great journey. Uh, like I said, I've been doing this about 20 years. Um, I really enjoy it. Uh, I think we provide a great service, helping people, you know, get mortgages to buy their homes. Um, and in addition, you know, I get to work with people all the time. So I enjoy that. Um, we feel like we're kind of problem solvers, you know, help them, you know, get the right mortgage, get the right fit, you know, get the best rate. Um, so it's been a great journey. Um, truly enjoyed. I've met hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of great people, real estate agents, builders, you know, real estate investors, first time buyers, you know, grandmas, grandpas. Uh, you name it. So it's it's been a great journey. So how long ago did you uh, get into the mortgage industry? Uh, it's been about 20 years now. 20 years. Oh, wow. Um, so, I, I mean, obviously a lot has changed since now to then. Um, I guess the biggest misconception I've always like, I always thought like you hear online all the time, like the, the Fed, the Fed rates, rate raking everything up like that controls mortgages. And after our conversation, uh, you kind of enlightened me saying that, okay, it's actually not anything to do with the feds is about the bond. Can you kind of tell us like, so if you look at the, the chart, what you'll see is um, from 2010 to 2020, and this is just a 10 year stretch, you'll see the top line uh, is the 30 year fixed rate mortgage. Uh, then you'll see the line just below that, which is the lighter blue line. Uh, that's the 10 year treasury yield. And if you'll notice, they kind of mirror each other. So the misconception has been that mortgage rates are based on the Fed rate, uh, the federal funds rate. And that's the rate that you always hear in the news. Hey, the Fed's you know, hiking the rate, et cetera. And so everybody in their mind thinks that when they raise it, mortgage rates go up. When they lower it, mortgage rates go down. In reality, mortgage rates are based on this 10-year treasury bond. And so as that moves up and down, the 30-year mortgage rates move up and down with it. And if you'll notice the gray line at the bottom, uh, that's called the rate spread. Now, you'll notice that one's relatively flat. So what does that mean? That means that the spread between what uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, et cetera, are buying the money at, which is the 10-year treasury yield, and then selling it back to the mortgage industry, which is a 30-year fixed mortgage rate, that's the spread they're getting. But notice it's about the same. So the spread that they get is relatively the same. It's kind of like uh, when you go to your bank and you get you know, 0.5% on your savings, uh, but you get a 2% uh, rate on your car loan. And they're, so they're good, the bank's getting that spread, that 1.5% difference. So that's the biggest misconception. So this is the, uh, now we are going to introduce the prime rate in the middle of this to see, you know, we've, we've still got the uh, 30 year fixed mortgage rate. Uh, that's the green line. 
You've got the U.S. 10-year Treasury. You know, that's the the orange line. Um, and you'll notice they still mirror each other. So they rise and fall together. You see them kind of almost looking the same. One is just a little below the other. And then you see the prime rate, which is the blue line. But notice the blue line's all over the place. It, it's not connected to the 30-year mortgage rate at all. It's just kind of up and down and up and down. And you can see there's a big flat line period there for a few years. So the prime rate, again, is not... And by the way, the prime rate is based on the federal funds rate. So the federal funds rate, the Fed comes out and says, hey, we're hiking the rate. Banks then bump the prime rate, which is tied directly to the federal funds rate. And you can see that that prime rate, which is a derivative of that Fed rate that you hear about when they raise it or, or lower it. But you can see that it has nothing to do with the 30-year fixed rate. Now, in some ways, it has an indirect effect, meaning when the prime rate goes up, uh, the economy tends to slow down a little bit, and sometimes that can cause mortgage rates to drop. When the prime rate goes down, um, then the economy starts to heat up, and in theory, it would cause uh, 30-year fixed rate mortgages possibly to rise a little. Uh, so it does have an indirect effect, but it is not directly tied to the mortgage rates. All right. So, for instance, let's say like Jerome Powell right now, he is raise, raising that price up. What? So if it doesn't control exactly what uh, the mortgage rate, what is exactly they're doing? though? So when they raise that up and they raise the price for the banks, what is the bank using that money for? Are they just using that for like, is it car loans or is it? So, so the bank uses the uh, prime rate is always going to have about a, a 3% spread from the federal funds rate. So it's, it's pretty consistent. And that's what they use primarily for like, home equity, lines of credit, um, car loans, uh, personal loans, things like that. Uh, okay. The rate does matter. I mean, it does affect our economy. Um, again, they raise it typically to try to slow down an economy or to try to slow down inflation. And inflation generally, as a general rule, rises, meaning the cost of living, the cost of gas, cost of groceries, you know, cost of everything generally rises when economies are, are booming uh, because when economies are booming, everybody's buying things and therefore uh, the demand for those things is high and the supply tends to be low. And so that's, you know, a retailer can charge more because everybody wants their stuff. Yeah. Um, so let's, let's take it back um, almost like a history lesson. So let's say back in 2020, um, Corona happened. Um, and all of a sudden we saw like the mortgage rates just suddenly like dropped. It went like well, definitely when Corona hit, um, all kinds of things happened. Unemployment, of course, you know, began to go through the roof. Um, and as a result, the economy really began to tank. Uh, in the middle of that tanking, the Fed did their best if, to lower uh, the prime rate to or the federal funds rate to the lowest it's ever been um, to try and stir up the economy and keep it going. Unfortunately, because things were so bad, unemployment was so high, um, as a result of that, um, the economy tanks, 10-year uh, treasuries start to, to drop, the stock market was um, taking a hit at that time. Of course, it did rebound and come back, but during that entire time, it really just crushed our economy to the point where even the treasury yields had to drop um, as demand for them actually was very high. People wanted to put their money in bonds. It's very safe. Stocks seemed risky. So all this money floods into bonds. When money goes into bonds, the bond yields drop 
because they don't have to offer as much. And then, of course, because the 10-year, as an example, is one instrument, there's a one-year treasury, a five-year treasury, a 10, a 30, and many other instruments out there. But because that particular one took such a nosedive, as a result, of course, the mortgage rates, which are pretty much tied to it to a degree, uh, they just tanked along with it. They just nosedived with it. Okay, so when um, the feds lowered the price, that necessarily didn't really affect mortgages. But when the uh, people flooded into the 10-year treasury bond, that's what really um, drove, the pro- drove the price down for mortgage rates? It's one effect. Um, you know, there were, so, there were so many other indirect effects. Um, but, but ultimately, that was one large effect. Uh, people mm-hmm. fled to bonds. They really wanted safe money. Um, and when you think about it, you know, people, if people want to be in stocks, then they don't want to be in bonds. Well, if they don't want to be in bonds, what does the bond, you know, seller have to do to get them back? They have to raise their rates. And the opposite is true as well. 22, uh, inflation is going crazy. The feds are, um, are raising up hike and everyone thinks that interest rates are going to about to go to like 8% with inflation and Jerome Powell, I know he really likes Paul Walker and they're going to probably match inflation rates with the prime rate. Um, I guess my one, one main question is, if it doesn't affect that, why, why is right now we see a super inc- uh, big increase in the mortgage rates? Now they were at like 3%. Now they're at like 6 7%. Uh, like, Yeah, multiple factors. Um, you know, money is going back into stocks. And it has been, um, even through you know, all of last year. You know, uh, when that happens, of course, bond rates rise. Um, I think inflation is just uh, hammering all of us and indirectly it's causing all rates across the board to rise. It's, it's not a money grab per se, but it is the effect that um, if the cost of everything is higher, everybody needs to charge more. That's just kind of a more simplistic way to put it. Um, you know, if gas is $6 a gallon or $5 a gallon, um, Every company out there that sells something, you know, has to charge more for their things to be able to buy what they used to buy as well. So I think what you're seeing is you're just seeing across the board, every industry, uh, including bond rates, which affect mortgage rates, they're all rising to try to capture um, the lessening effect of what they're able to pay for. For example, if inflation was low, these, these rates probably would not be this high. Um, but because inflation is so high, uh, even the bond issuers uh, are needing to raise what they're charging in order to compensate for the cost of living for all of us, so to speak. So think of cost of living as being one factor that can drive rates up or down independently. Yeah, because I guess because uh, if inflation is going through the roof, their return on the money is not yeah. very good, so they don't see paper as a good investment putting into the treasury bond. And and what you see is prior to inflation kind of going crazy, uh, mortgage rates, well, the treasury and therefore mortgage rates have kind of operated on their own, you know, outside of inflation because it wasn't that bad. You know, the typical inflation was, you know, two, 3%. And while it stayed there for a long time, rates still rose and fell. So they were kind of independent of that. But now we've got this hyperinflation, uh, which is just ca- causing all of it to rise across the board. Like, obviously, no one's can predict it, things. But what's your prediction for the rest of the year? Do you think um, interest rates are rising, knowing what you know about the 10-year bond and 
I guess the feds don't really have that much uh, control over it. But what do you think with the 10 year bond for the next year is going to look like? Uh, that's a great question. And there's a lot of debate about this. Um, the consensus seems to be, you know, you on the one side, you've got a small percentage, you know, um, that that believe it could go to seven or, you know, seven, eight. Um, I think the the general larger consensus seems to be that it could hover where it's at or could rise or creep up farther and still hit seven, but maybe not get there quite as quickly as we went from you know, three to six, um, which we did that in what, four months or five months. So I, I definitely think that they could go on the, or continue on the rise. I mean, not go on the rise, just continue. Uh, where they're gonna stop, that's, that's just so unpredictable. And there's just a lot of speculation. You know, here's hoping that it'll settle in. It seems to have flattened a tiny bit recently. So yeah. that's news. Um, will, will that continue? Maybe. Um, rates tend to rise in general in the spring and summer because that's when the economy is stronger. And they generally tend to fall a little bit in the, uh, in the winter uh, when the, with the exception of you know, Black Friday, I guess, um, and Christmas. But uh, so we'll see. It's, it's going to be very interesting. I know for like the um, the Federal Reserve, they have three main uh, controls. Like they can do, uh, they can make borrowing power from from banks a lot more stricter. Um, they can raise the, uh, the the strike price or the I guess the the price that you were talking about. And can't they also buy those bonds that make it that pushes mm-hmm. rates down, or can't they control it that way, like buying and selling bonds? They can. In fact, um, they were. When, when the market crashed, uh, real estate market, you know, mm-hmm. took that big nosedive way back in 2008, um, in an effort to keep rates down, and because the economy just took a nosedive to a degree, you know, somewhat of a recession. So to keep rates down uh, historically, and particularly back then, uh, they bought enormous chunks of these bonds um, in, in order to keep rates down. Yeah. Uh, they They've also done that in the last several years. Um, one of the things that can cause rates to then start to go back up is when they begin to sell them back. And they have done that. They have been on a sort of a, a, a campaign where they're systematically selling back chunks. Um, and when they do, you know, rates will then creep up a little bit. So they're, it's called quantitative easing. It's just a fancy yeah. term. Yeah, it's just a fancy term that means, you know, they're trying to manipulate uh, through the buying of, of these bonds or, or in re- reverse the selling off of them. Did you see a lot of comparisons with the, the 08s financial crisis to kind of what's going on right now? So you can see that um, home prices since 1954 were relatively stable. They look almost flat, you know, for, for almost two decades. And then they begin to rise. And, but notice the rise is kind of consistent. Um, it seems to be roughly the same year over year. You don't see any any dips. You don't see any big spikes. Then notice that little section between 2004 and 2009. That's and see that hump. Well, that was that yeah. run we saw 2003, four, five, six, seven, and then it, we hit the eight. And then notice the big dip. You know, from that top of the hump to what is that about 2012 or so, 2013. Yeah. You know, it troughed out. And here we go, you know, here comes the rise again. So, but notice that the rise in the most recent um, illustration here at the very far end of the graph, 
uh, it's a, a little spiky. It's yeah. a little, yeah, for it, sure. It kind of shot up there, you know, kind of like it did before. So the real question that's on everybody's mind, you know, are we going to see a weight all over again? Um, no one really knows. And, and here are some of the signs that we had back at the time. Of course, you had uh, tremendous appreciation in a very rapid manner uh, with home prices, which is due to supply and demand, mostly simple as that. You have a small inventory and a large group of buyers and, you know, prices go up. People, the, some of the signs were the following, you know, people were overpaying for houses, meaning it listed for 300 and you got a bidding war and you sold it for 330. Yeah. You know, every time every time a house sells, that becomes a new comparable sale for the next appraisal on the next sale, and so it just it becomes a cycle, it's a spiral, it spirals up. Uh, and the opposite is that it can spiral down like it did in 08. Um, so we're seeing people overpaying for houses just like they did back then. Uh, we're seeing uh, uh, contracts, real estate contracts that have no appraisal contingency. So the buyer saying, "All right, uh, let's listed for 300." I'll give you, I, I won the bid at 325 and I'm not even getting an appraisal. Now, if you have a lot of money, you can afford that risk because the appraisal comes in low. You just pay the difference out of pocket and you move on. Not so if you're a first time buyer, maybe you're going, going zero down. You can't afford that. So what's happening is that the people who are overbuying and not paying for appraisal or not uh, contingent on appraisals or home inspections or, you know, these kinds of indicators, they just continue to spike it up. And just like in, in the, or, or the mid to late uh, 2000s up to the uh, crash in 08, um, you're not only seeing, you know, multiple buyers and you're seeing elevator clauses, which, you know, rise that raise the, the price in a contract. Um, you're seeing sellers not even taking certain types of contracts now, you know, so yeah. they'll take a cash buyer, they'll take a 20% down buyer. Um, I heard, I uh, talked to somebody in Atlanta and um, they made a comment that, uh, and this was last year, uh, still early in the year during COVID, and they made the comment that the Atlanta sellers are not even taking VA and FHA contracts because they yeah, don't. This kind of happened here too. Mm -hmm. oh, so good. Supply, supply is low, demand is high. So back in 08, y'all saw a lot of like adjustable rate mortgages and stuff like that. And I, I thought that was like mainly the big cause and people like over, over leveraging may have been another one. Um, do you see a lot of adjustable rate mortgages going now? Because I don't really think I've seen very many of them, but over leveraging, yeah, um, we had a conversation, I believe it was like last week, we talked about over leveraging is actually worse now than it was because I guess you, when you get pre-approved it was based off a of 33 percent back then and now it's up to 45 percent uh can you talk about that a little bit yeah of course it was 45 back then too so oh okay yeah there was a time about 20 plus years ago 15 20 plus years ago where um this um metric that lenders use which is called debt to income ratio meaning your house payment your car payment your credit card payments all divided by your gross income and what is that percentage and there was a time in the industry where um, lenders would not allow, well, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and VA and FHA would not allow uh, typically more than 33, 36% of your gross income committed towards your monthly house payment, car payment, credit cards, et cetera. Uh, not counting utilities, of course. Um, now, in the last 15 to 20 years, though, that number has 
gone to 40, 45. Uh, there was a time during the um, during that real estate bubble, 03, 4, 5, 6, 7, where uh, we would get approvals at 50% debt to income ratio, 55% debt to income ratio. Uh, it's still around 43 to 45 now, which is still a little high. Um, and yes, that can be an over leveraged situation. I guess a lot of it depends on the scenario and, and what is the actual physical income coming in. I think I think that's crazy because it's like so. Let's say if someone makes like fifty thousand, and you, you said they can borrow up to forty five percent. Well, that's before taxes, and taxes is going to wipe you out uh, a good amount of it, anyways. And then you have to live. So I feel like there's that's almost a big risk that I think that okay, people like over leverage themselves a lot, and I feel like that could be the kind of possibility that could my in my mind think there could be a, a crash because I think. Like if you look at it with the whole whole debt increase, the debt people's debt increases have grown dramatically over the net, uh, last couple of years, but their incomes really have not grown. So it's like their debt ceiling has grown tremendously, but the income is not really keeping up with the amount of debt that people are accumulating or as a uh, country that we're accumulating. So that's what my opinion, I think we're in a big, big of a, uh, an issue going forward, but I'm curious to what your thought is with the whole, I guess, economy as a whole going forward with, do you see it as another crash? Because I'm, I mean, I have, been, I go back and forth all the time. Yeah. It's, um, there's so much debate over this. Um, I hope there's not one, you know, it's, it's yeah. it, would, it would be a bad, you know, situation for our country. And of course, for, you know, a lot of people, obviously, but I think the biggest concern is a you're right over leveraging, but inflation's uh, contributing heavily because you know the the amount of money people are having to spend over and above what their budget used to be. Yeah, I agree. That's, that's causing a crunch. You know, um, you know, I can remember I used to be able to fill up a, and this is just a year ago, six months ago, I used to be able to fill up a, a basket of groceries for. 200 bucks, maybe, you know, something like that. And now it's 300, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's, you know, like a, food, gas, and housing has gone crazy. <laughs> yeah. I, and I, I talked to, you know, I, having a lot of clients who, you know, either uh, they're self-employed, so they are driving their trucks to, you know, to work or they're, they're long haul truckers, you know, with uh, 18 wheelers and things like that. And they're telling me, they're like, Dave, this is crushing us. Yeah. Is crushing. Yeah. I can only imagine. So let's say, let's say uh, a lot of our viewers is just like the average people just want to buy a house. Um, is what, what do you think? Do you think they should like, I mean, I'm against like, don't over leverage yourself, but what's your opinion? Do you think, Hey, do you know, mortgage rates? Do you think, okay, should they hold off? Uh, wait, wait for them to drop. Do you think they're going to drop? Should they wait a year or two? Like what's your opinion on, people that are worried about rates, they don't want to over leverage themselves. Do you think, okay, now it's not going to get much better. You might as well, if you want to do it in the next year or two, just go ahead and do it. Or do you think you should wait? And obviously no one's got a crystal ball, so no one's perfect. So I'm just curious to what your thoughts are. I get asked that question a lot, actually, because as a lender, uh, like most lenders, you know, probably a third, maybe a little more than a third of the clients we have are first time buyers. Um, and 
that question comes up very often. You know, David, is this the right time to buy? And I feel like the right answer generally is, well, it depends, but but depends on you. In other words, what is your budget? What can you afford? Um, so the principles of what you can afford to me have never changed. Inflation, not if, you know, high inflation, low inflation, high mortgage rates, low mortgage rates. So I think ultimately it comes down to the individual's ability to manage their budget. So for example, you know, person's paying, a person's paying, um, you know, for example, a person's paying $1,300 in rent or $1,400 in rent. Well, or, and, let's, and let's say they're saving $800 a month, and that's, so that's $2,200 a month that's built into their house and their savings. Well, the question is, can they get a mortgage payment or can they find the house they want that would bring them a mortgage payment along with what they could still save also factoring in the things you don't have to pay for when you rent, like, you know, buying a lawnmower, gas for the lawnmower, you got to fix, you got to change light bulbs, you got to fix the yeah. broken. So it all comes down to that to me. It's budgeting. If the person has the wherewithal to, with, to manage that and afford it, then I think it's always a good time to buy. Um, on the other hand, if they can't, then it's never a good time to buy. Yeah. Do you, do you, would you suggest like them having like a certain amount of sa and savings before they take that leap? Like as to be like more on the caution side to like, to budget themselves going forward. Do you, do you see like they should have like, let's say three to six months reserves just in case, or like what's your personal preference on that? Well, and of course this, this is a, a number that uh, probably will vary based on the circumstance. So for example, um, as a general rule, you know, financial planners, um, I, I believe, tend to, at least the ones I've spoken to, tend to uh, ask people to, or encourage people to have six months yeah. uh, of living expenses. <clears throat> now, that can vary. Um, and uh, not a lot of people necessarily have that. Uh, and it also, I feel like, depends on the scenario. For example, I get sometimes a young couple who uh, have very supportive families who basically say, we'll help you out if you, if you ever need it. Well, they kind of have a safety net. So they have yeah. a little more, you know, space to move around in, in case things get, get tough. You know, on the other hand, it's single mother. Um, she has no support from any family members. There's no one coming to help her if things go tight. That's a little different. You know, that person's got to be extremely cautious. Um, yeah, I agree. So, so um i guess today, today is july um july 6th what are rates looking right right now like uh because i know we had a conversation uh yesterday because we were talking about investment loans and you were saying that okay well it's actually the rates actually get better the more money you put down can we kind of talk about that uh investment loans or uh, investment rates with also personal like con regular conventional and va uh va loans yeah, as a general rule, and this will be kind of a range because they fluctuate slightly, but right now, uh, owner-occupied uh, primary residence 30-year uh, fix has been in the high fives, you know, 5.75, 5.875. Uh, you might even see a six. Uh, you might see something a tiny bit less than the 5.75, but that probably be uh, unusual. Is that with discount points or not discount yeah. points? Uh, generally, no, although there is a kind of a, a strange phenomenon that's happening right now uh, with Fannie Mae, 
uh, and Freddie Mac who price to the industry. So when mortgage lenders offer a rate to the consumer, they're actually uh, offering the the uh, the rate that Fannie Mae is giving them with it bumped up a little bit because they have to have some margin. And so Fannie Mae right now is oftentimes not giving no discount point rates available to lenders. And the reason for this is they're trying to grab the money now while they can in anticipation of three years from now, rates are you know back down where they were and everybody refinances. And so lenders never got a chance to collect all that money over a long period of time. So that's kind of a, a behind the scenes. So Fannie prices to the industry, uh, the industry you know, has to market up a little bit. Um, so you, you may find those rates with no points and you may find them with some points, you know, okay. so, um, so depends just on, depends on the day. <laughs> yeah. For just for anyone that doesn't know, discount point is 1% of your, uh, your loan amount. But um, I guess, so you were saying, so how does the actual lenders make money? So they get, they get uh, a certain price percentage from Fannie Mae, Fannie Mac, and do they mark it up and sell it to the consumer? Like, how does that, how's that part work? So it's really kind of a, it's a, a little bit convoluted. So everybody hang in there with me. Um, so you have the, uh, you know, the lender and they have the rate and the $200,000 loan that they're going to loan you. When that loan closes, they actually sell the paper, the, the note part, the paper to Fannie Mae and Fannie Mae in turn pays them a fee and reimburses them the 200,000 so they can go lend it again and again and again. So it's kind of a rinse and repeat. So the lender gets a little fee from Fannie Mae when they sell the paper to them at the same time or simultaneously, um, once that's done, and you start making your payments. Well, where does that payment go? A, a small piece of it goes to the lender who's servicing the loan. So you're making your, your payment to you know, Atlantic Union Bank or you know, someone else. And a piece of that for the servicing rights, you know, send you the bill, collect your payment, toll-free number, customer service, et cetera. For that right to do that, the lender gets a small percentage of the total payment and the rest forwards onto Fannie Mae. So Fannie Mae gets their cut from the, the, the forwarding of the larger piece of the payment. Yeah. The lender gets a smaller cut from a smaller piece of the payment. And the lender initially, when they sold the paper, you made the two, we made the $200,000 loan uh, to, the, to the buyer. We sold the paper to Fannie Mae and we got a small fee for it. So, and that's why lenders wanna carry loans longer and that's why Fannie Mae wants the wants wants lenders to carry loans longer because every month the payment's made, Fannie gets a bigger piece, lender gets a smaller piece, and it keeps going. So what's happening is the concern with Fannie Mae, unfortunately, right now is um, that three years from now, rates let's just say drop back down to four, everybody refinances, and all those you know six percent loans that were being made today only got carried for three years instead of five or seven or nine. And so they lost a lot of money. So it's, so Fannie Mae may be marginally right, you know, keeping them a little higher than they maybe could be in order to grab what they can in anticipation of a likely future refinance sell-off. 
personal um, owner-occupant mortgages and uh, investment loans. I know you said they uh, they changed a little bit for investor loans from like for putting 20%, 25% down. Can you talk about like the differences uh, between them? Sure. So uh, historically, uh, primary residence owner-occupied rates uh, were typically about a half percent, maybe three quarters of a percent lower than investment property rates. You know, when you buy a house to rent it as a rental property. So historically, investor rates were, you know, about 0.75% to, you know, down to 0.5% higher than your primary residence owner occupied. Well, about two years ago, uh, Fannie Mae decided uh, that they wanted to increase that spread. And so now, which it's not unusual, let's put it that way, to see a higher, a larger gap, you know, than a half percent between a owner-occupied and investor rates. Um, it's not always the case, but we do see that. Um, now, in terms of uh, getting a better rate with down payment, um, as a general rule, um, when you put more money down, sometimes the rate can get a little better. And it's especially true with investor. You don't see it quite so much with owner-occupied. They don't give as much of a break um, from, say, someone putting down you know, 20% versus 25 versus 40%. But investor specifically, you can definitely um, get a little better break by putting a larger percent down. Investor property um, mortgages require 20% down. But if you do put that extra 5% down and make it 25% down, sometimes uh, the rate's a little smidge better. Probably will be more than 0.125%, one eighth of a percent, which is generally how rates run. They run in eighths. Um, you know, 30% down can make another small difference, sometimes even 40. Most investors don't want to put down that much um, because they're looking for, you know, return on their, their, their cash. Yeah. But, uh, but Yeah. Um, I remember, uh, I guess may have been a while ago, uh, single family homes for investor loans used to be 15%. Um, most small multifamily two to four were 25% and some, uh, most commercial was like 20. Um, did they kind of like change their guidelines with now single family houses are, have to be 20%, uh, 20% down or like what happened there? Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, Pre-2008 crash, uh, you actually could put 10% down investor, but anything less than 20% down, as we know, uh, carries PMI or private mortgage insurance, the, uh, the fee that's charged for the risk of foreclosure to the lender. Uh, after the crash, the mortgage insurance companies decided they no longer wanted to insure investment property. And that's when we saw the, the switch from the 10% down with PMI, and there's, I don't know, 10 or 12 major PMI companies in the country. So they decided, the PMI companies said, we're not doing investment property anymore. And now that's when the requirement went to 20. Um, I actually I heard there was one PMI company apparently out there that still does 15%. I don't know who they are. It's just, maybe it's a rumor. Um, but yeah, so multifamily now is 25%. Um, so the, the two units, the three units, and the four units. And then, of course, as we know, you know, five units above is considered commercial. And so that's a, a commercial loan versus a residential mortgage loan. I got you. Um, so, and then commercial is like 20% too, right? 
You know, commercial, I, I can't really speak to it because it's just not my, my expertise. Um, I will say this, when it, comparing the two, residential lending is generic, meaning it's a Fannie Mae world. So lenders everywhere are just going to follow those guidelines to, you know, all the way 20% down or 25. It's all generic to everyone. Commercial, on the other hand, is very unique to the uh, individual commercial lender. So you could call, you know, five commercial lenders um, and, buy, you know, to, to finance you know, an apartment building, and you're going to get some variance. You know, some are going to say put X amount down, some are going to want more. The rates are going to be potentially different. Um, even the product types might be a little different. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, commercial. And the reason for that is they're not selling the paper to Fannie Mae. They're holding it in-house just like they would a car loan or personal loan. And so they're making up their own rules within, I'm sure, some kind of structure that the industry sets for them. But it, the, but the, the, the latitude they have is, is, is much broader. If you're going to buy a house, you're, it's based on your income, your debt, uh, debt income ratio and your credit score. Um, is that changed at all from like the, uh, the um, buying your personal house to an investment loan? Does that change at all? Yeah, so across the variety of products, um, you know, VA loans for veterans, FHA loans, conventionals, USDA, et cetera, um, each of them tends to have a different uh, requirement. Uh, some of the products requ can require as low as a 620 middle score, uh, generally. Others may require 640, et cetera. Uh, investor loans tend to require uh, higher scores, 680, 700, things like that. Um, and these are all Fannie Mae guidelines because these are all guidelines that Fannie Mae sets out in order for the lender to be able to sell them the paper. So when they make the loan, if that loan does not meet those minimum requirements that Fannie Mae sets forth, then they can't sell the paper, which is what they want to do because they want to get their money back and get the fee and move on and loan it again. I gotcha. Um, so I know a very popular strategy right now is the burst strategies. Like they buy, uh, investor buys it and then they refinance. Um, how, how long does it take for like a, let's say if they buy a house and they want to um, get that straight over into a mortgage, does it take a, like a long process for something like that work or like someone like a, like a bank, like a land union, are they able to like fast, fast forward, something like that? Cause even for myself, that's personally what I'm looking for. And so how does, uh, like the rollover between buying the house in cash and then putting it in a loan, like how, how fast is that usually, how long does that usually take? So I uh, think of um, there are really uh, two ways to do that. Uh, and they have different requirements. Um, and of course what we're referring to is, you know, you buy the home, you know, you rehab it and then you refinance it and then you repeat the process on the next one and so forth. Um, so if you're purchasing the home and you are not concerned about getting your rehab money back out of it, so you just, you just paid a hundred thousand bucks for it, you put 30 in it. So now you have 130 in it. Um, if you're not trying to get your rehab money back out, um, and you either paid cash, you know, the hundred grand or you got a $100,000 loan, which would be 100% financing technically, I guess, on yeah. the purchase side. If you're not, not trying to get your rehab money out, uh, you don't, there's no waiting period. There's no seasoning. So you could have bought the house on Monday, um, 
and started to refinance on Tuesday. And then of course, mortgages take about 30 days. Um, sometimes a little longer, sometimes a little shorter, but um, on the other hand, if you bought it for a hundred, put 30 in it in rehab, and you really didn't want to leave the money in there because that's money you don't want to just leave in there for your return on cash and or you might want it for the next rehab. Yeah. Unfortunately, those have a six month waiting period. Uh, those are classified technically as cash outs. Um, so unfortunately, that's the slower way to do it. I got you. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Um, so do you have any like last piece of advice that you would give like a investor person just looking to buy a house? Like what's some piece of advice coming from a, a lender to help prepare themselves to buy a house or prepare for their future? What do you I think the most most important thing is uh, having a pre-approved position um, because if you're going to get mortgages either on the front end just as a straight purchase you're not you're not buying rehabbing and refinancing you know etc but you're just buying the house putting the 20 percent down and moving on um, in either case um, you want to be mortgage approvable so i feel like the, the number one thing to do is get with your loan officer um, if you don't want to pull in credit, uh, at least go through the numbers. Um, you know, here's what I make. You know, um, here's what my bills are. Now, bills do not mean cell phones and utilities and groceries and gas and insurance. They literally mean debts. You know, my current house payments, $1,700. My car payments, $300. My credit cards totaled to whatever. So I feel like that's the most important piece for an investor is being uh, prepared prepared and staged so they're ready to go and then when they're then when they need to pull the trigger they know they'll have absolutely no issue on the financing side gotcha um i guess uh, i have another question so there's going with a mortgage with a bank and there's going with a, a mortgage company um what what's the kind of the difference between them? like is it better to do for this for this reason is better to do uh this for this reason is there like really a difference between like a mortgage company and like a bank like Atlantic Union Bank, Wells Fargo, U.S. Bank and all that? Well, of course I'm biased <laughs> um, because I work for Atlantic Union Bank, but um, really there's not any significant difference. Um, we, we all do the same thing. We make mortgages and, you know, of course, banks also take deposits, do commercial loans. So there's that side of it. But in terms of the mortgage lending piece, um, we, we do the same same thing. We really do. The only thing that I uh, do encourage people to do um, is to go local. Um, not everybody cares. You know, internet lenders are out there. Uh, they do have a, a nice, sizable, you know, part of the market share of mortgages in our country. Um, I would never tell someone it was a terrible idea. But on the other hand, I do feel that when you go local, you have the benefit of being able to either make, meet face to face uh, you can solve your issues um, directly. You can get in your car and drive and drop off documents if, if maybe if you're not, you know, savvy with scanning and uploading and things like that. So that would be the only thing I would say is, um, e although mortgage lenders in general, whether they're banks, credit unions, or mortgage companies, we're going to offer the same things. Occasionally, a bank or credit union might have um, some unique products that may not be available to um, mortgage companies, maybe like uh, 
you know, medical doctor products that are a specialty product or construction products when you want to build your own home. So sometimes they'll have those and the mortgage companies might not. But by and large, we 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 have the same, we do the same thing. Okay. Um, um, so for someone who wants to reach out and learn more about you, where can they find you? Uh, are you online? Like website, what's the best place to reach out to you if they want to get a hold of you? Well, I do have um, an email, a cell phone, and a link, and uh, we'll make sure and get those posted for everyone if that's okay with you, Tyler. Yep, they'll be in, they'll be in the bio 